All right, Venture, it's great to see you here today. Do me a favor, if you were not here last Sunday, would you just raise your hand? Put your hand up in the air, wave it like you just don't care. Uh, listen, no shame if you weren't here last Sunday. Maybe your child was sick, maybe you were sick, maybe you're out of town. No shame. We want to make sure you get one of these in your hand. So stick your hand up. Don't be afraid to wave that around. Some of our ushers will bring these to you right now. I do want to highlight a few of the things that are happening right here in this book. If you weren't here last Sunday, do go back and watch the message or... And hit a website. If you're joining us online today, you could do this even right now. We have this content available digitally at this website. Let's go ahead and put it up on the screen. It's venturechristian.church/slash new life. If you go there, we've got all kinds of content there, including this in digital form that you can interact with there. Hey, listen. Uh, I want to show you kind of what you're looking at as you open up and begin to thumb through this book. You're going to see some vision pages. If you hit that website, there's a, about a 10-minute video on there that's going to unpack some of the primary goals and secondary goals of this vision. Make sure you watch that. Some of you, you dig it in print as well. You can look through and see some of that there. Primary goals secondary goals, you can spend some time checking that out. Go ahead and turn, if you would, to page 26. Each week, this is the rhythm, all five weeks, you're going to show up, you're going to bring this with you, you're going to take your notes on the message notes page. For today, that's page 26. Then you're going to take this same booklet with you with those notes all filled out to your small group, and there's some great content in there that our small groups group has put together. And uh, I had a great conversation. We had a great conversation in my small group last Monday night. I'm looking forward to tomorrow night's conversation. We'll unpack this. We're studying through a passage of Scripture together, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. Great conversations in small group there. You don't want to miss out on that opportunity. What else is... Uh, something that we need to talk through, this commitment card. Last week, the challenge to you and to me, to us, was to take this commitment card and put it someplace in your house, which will remind you one singular action step to pray. Maybe you set it next to your nightstand or on your nightstand. Maybe you set it where your toothbrush is. Maybe you put it in your Bible, wherever will remind you to pray. And would you begin to do that? Would you pay, pray bold prayers? Would you pray courageous prayers? Would you ask God to begin to reveal to you what it's going to look like for you to engage you and your family during this new life season? Be praying. This is how that rhythm works. We ask, God speaks. Then we listen, and then we respond. That sounds simple, but faith, in my opinion, it happened even just last night as I was praying and listening to God. Faith gets grown in between each of those four sentences. We ask, God speaks, we listen, we respond. Part of the way you're going to respond is uh, at the very end of this series, Circle the date, November 19. We're calling it Commitment Weekend. You're going to take this commitment card, and you're going to, in a moment of honesty, you're going to declare this commitment before God. As we're going to discover today, this is an act of lordship. 
And we're going to unpack that. We're going to spend the rest of the time that we have today to talk about that. Before I start yapping, before I start talking, though, could we simply pause and could we invite God to speak to us today? Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for what you're doing in us and what you desire to do through us. Father, as we open up your word, as we open up the text, this longest teaching in the whole Bible on this topic that we're studying, would you reveal some things to us, each one of us, that we need to hear and give us the courage to act on it. It's in your name, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I learned a long time ago, like high school long time ago, not to mess with the wrestlers. Did anybody else learn this maybe the wrong way like I did? I, I had a clue. I saw it coming. I was in PE class one day. Coach B, the wrestling coach in my high school, was as tall as he was wide. Take a moment for that image to sink in. Coach B, he had a bit of a, a belly, kind of had the dad bod going on, but you could tell underneath that he had muscles and he knew how to use them. One of my peers was lipping off to him, and it was like that. It was so fast it would make your head spin. That dude is on his back, tied up like a human pretzel, pretzel looking at the ceiling tiles. I witnessed that, and I didn't learn. Not yet. I had a friend in high school. His name is Eric Viznik. He's in my youth group. We're in my church, like my home church, inside the building. I could walk you to the space right now. It was like an overflow section of the worship space. And he challenged me. I don't know why we were hanging out in there. I think it was a Sunday night. But he said, hey, do you want to wrestle like an idiot? I said, sure. I thought, I could hold my own. No problem, right? Well, he was on the wrestling team. I was not. I couldn't get past the singlets. That was a, a non-starter for me. He knew what he was doing. We started, and it was like I didn't even blink. I'm on my back. I'm tied up like a human pretzel. I'm staring at the ceiling. Skip ahead to like 10 years ago. I'm serving at a different church. And uh, the pastoral staff is on a retreat. We're away studying, prepping, gearing up for the year. Our children's pastor, Joe McGinnis, I love this guy. He's about this tall, wiry. I knew that he was the state wrestling champion in his weight class in Ohio. Dude knew how to wrestle. One of the other pastoral staff members had been lippy with him this whole retreat. Kept poking at him, kept prodding him. You want to wrestle? You want to wrestle? And Joe had done the thing. Like, no. I mean, he knew. He knew that, like, he was registered weapon, lethal, whatever. This guy just kept messing with him. We all saw it coming at the end. We pushed all the stuff out of the way. They wrestled. I mean, it was like that. This dude was tied up like a human pretzel staring at the ceiling. We're all kind of chuckling. Oh, boy. It comes down to technique. It's not just strength, although that matters. It's not just speed, although that matters. It comes down to drills, education, execution, uncle. I cry uncle. I fear that this is what some of us are thinking about right now. When we hear words like stewardship, we hear words like generosity, we know those are buzzwords. Or when the preacher starts talking about money in church. Ah, I don't like that feeling. 
It makes us think about that family reunion where your weird cousin pinned you down and made you say uncle, right? I don't like that. Maybe your cousin was one of those weird dudes that would do that thing where he'd spit and he'd suck it back up and he'd spit and he'd suck it back up. Nobody else, none of you lived through that in your childhood. But this, you don't like this feeling. I don't like to cry uncle. I don't want to surrender. The title of today's message is that the new life, this new life that we're talking about each week is, uh, it's the surrendered life. Surrender. I surrender. I yield. I'll even cry uncle. We opened up the series last week with the foundation that the new life is the eternal life. And we talked about this idea that you have to do this, you have to let go of what you're clinging to if you want to take hold of the new life that is the eternal life. It's been a while since we've pulled out our hand map. I'm going to invite you to do that right now with me. This time it's Greece. We're studying through 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. This is the longest continuous teaching in the entire Bible on this topic of generosity, this topic of giving. Last week, we looked at how Paul was writing to the Corinthian church. It's down in the southern part of my hand. He's referencing, he's talking about this group of Christians he calls the Macedonian Christians, these Macedonian churches in the northern part of the region of Greece. And he keeps using language like they give out of their poverty. And he refers to it as the grace of giving. So interesting. Well, we want to kind of continue where we left off. If you have not yet done this, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to begin in verse 8 here in a minute. If you want to go there with me, the Bibles that are underneath the seats in front of you, I'm on page 1,162 of those Bibles. The new life is the surrendered life. Hear me. I talked last week about the eternal life. I believe that my eternity began that moment. I asked Jesus to be my Savior. That's when my eternity began. And every day along this journey, I ask him to be more Lord of my life. That is surrender. Surrender isn't a negative thing, you understand. It can, and I would argue should be, a positive thing. When Jesus is Lord, that's positive. I need to acknowledge, though, I surrender can feel scary. Some of us are maybe feeling that right now. The preacher's talking about money. Oh, I don't like that. I surrender feels scary. Let's just acknowledge that. Let's also acknowledge that I surrender, if we let it, it could bring peace. There's something about me acknowledging Eric Bisnick was a wrestler. He was trained. He was practiced. He was drilled. I never put on a singlet. I didn't even really know what I was doing. That is a surrender thing, and it brings me peace even to say his wrestling prowess was better than mine in every aspect. There's some peace in simply acknowledging this. There's also peace in this area of my life in acknowledging that Jesus is Lord when the principles, the money principles he calls me to live by, feel contrary to what the world has taught me, 
But I do take an action of lordship and just simply say, I yield, I surrender, you're Lord of my life. There's some great peace to be found there. These are the cliff notes of the sermon, by the way. Here's the takeaway. I surrender. I surrender is God's plan for you. He wants you to surrender this part of your life. And I surrender can look like Jesus. I finally acknowledge you're Lord of my life. You're the boss. You ask me to jump, and I say, how high on the way up? It could be you saying, I'm going to stop trying to outrun, God, your call on my life. I've got a whole bunch of Christian pastor buddies that that is their story. They tried to outrun God's call on their life. God finally said, stop, follow me, and they surrendered. And they said, you lead, I'll follow. It could be that you're saying, I'm going to surrender my bank account to you, God, It could be you're saying, I'm going to surrender my retirement plans, my retirement strategies to you. Or I'm going to surrender my false security that I've insulated myself against risk. I'm going to surrender that to you. Why? Because you're Lord. I've received several emails this past week. I can tell that God is doing something in our midst. He's working on our hearts. By the way, if that's you, if God is beginning to write a story in your heart, a new life story, would you share that with me? Shoot me an email. My email address is stan at venturechristian.church. I would love to partner with you in prayer and begin to encourage you as well on this journey. Share those stories with me. That would encourage me. I would love to hear how God is working on your heart. Can we dive into the text? That Bible that's open in front of you, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8. Paul picks up exactly where we left off last week. This is what he says. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. In context, we need to grab this. He's just been talking about those Macedonian churches, Right? He talked about how they gave out of their poverty, this grace of giving. Yeah, of course, there's an earnestness there, and we can set them up as an example, and he's kind of doing that, and he kind of goes back to them later. But I think what he's doing right here, he's saying, hey, let's take three steps backwards. Yes, the Macedonian churches are an example in this generosity initiative. But there's another example as well. This grace of giving, he talked about them. The same word is used right here. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The foundation of this generosity thing, well, it's built on him. That though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor. This is the incarnation right here. Jesus describes himself as poor. He says, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man, he's describing himself, I have no place to lay my head. Listen, your salvation rests firmly on the broad shoulders of a homeless man. He leaves the wealth, the splendor of heaven, and he engages on our level. He leaves wealth for our sake. He becomes poor. And then the text continues, and it says this, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Could we simply acknowledge this? I've got three observations I want to share with you straight out of the text today. This whole series is an exegetical text. We're pulling this straight. These messages, these are straight out of the text. The first observation I give you this is new life giving recognizes something. We're going to share three of these. New life giving, first of all, recognizes that you and I, we give 
in light of the gospel. We give because Jesus showed us how. Actually, because this whole faith thing that we've stepped into, this whole journey, it's built on the foundation, the gospel message of Jesus Christ is a generosity story. We give in response to what Jesus did on the cross. The grace of giving we talked about last week, it's built on Jesus' grace. Could I simply acknowledge this before we go any further? Some of us are better than others at gift giving. My marriage would bear this out. Dawn is way better at gift. This is one of her love, love languages. She's way better at gift giving than I am. Now, does that mean I'm off the hook? I, no, no, I should seek to do better in that area. But I have to acknowledge she is way better than me at gift giving. I learned a long time ago I can't outgive Dawn. Have you ever heard this true statement? You can't outgive God. You can't. This generosity thing, it's built on the foundation that Jesus gave first. You can't outgive God. God is the best gift giver. Let me just share a few of those with you right now, just in case you haven't been reminded recently. He gave you the gift of his Holy Spirit to walk right with you. That is a profound gift. He gave you the gift of faith and for you to say, yes, I choose to follow you. I want you to save me from my sins and I want to invite you to be Lord of my life. This is it's built on faith. That's a gift from God. How about the gift of forgiveness? We just celebrated it a moment ago in communion. He forgives you of your sins. He clears a path for you to move toward eternity. He gives you the gift of the church. You get to do life together with like-minded Christians. You get together in a small group and discuss these principles and seek to live better according to God's principles for your life. This is a gift that he gives you, community inside the church. He gives you the gift of heaven. Oh, my goodness. Eternity. What a gift. You can't outgive God. But the gospel, the gospel lights up our generosity. It's the beginning of this journey. Let's just say that right off the top that the gospel shows us that we build on that. Here's the second point from verse 10, 11. And verse 12, new life giving recognizes that we give in light of the gospel. But get this, it also recognizes that God often cares less about what we are giving and more about what we aren't giving. And here's the kicker. And why? What's the motivation for that? God cares more about this posture and really why. Why am I clinging like this? In those spaces in my life, I've already given over lordship to him. Again, we pull this straight from the text. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 10, check this out. And here is my judgment about what is best for you. Paul, again, is writing to the Corinthians, and he's saying, listen, this is, this is medicine that you need to take. This is for you. This is going to make you better in this matter. Last, week, or last year, rather, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. He's saying, way to go. I saw your hearts on display last year. Now, finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. What you have, 
For the willingness, if it's there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Let's put that in plain speak. See, Paul is saying here that God is not asking us to give from what we don't have. That's a double negative, so I'm going to invite you to take just a minute and absorb that. Think about that. God is not asking us to give from what we do not have. I don't know about you, but that's comforting for me. I'm not responsible for what I don't have. I am responsible for what I do have. So let's say it this way. He's very much, he very much is asking us to give from what we do have. So the question becomes, and this is a question that only you can answer. It's between you and God. Quite honestly, it's none of my business. Are you ready for a question to wrestle through with God? This is a big one. You might want to write this one down. This is one to wrestle through later. According to the text, what are you not giving And better question, let's put it up, what are you not giving and why? Why are you clinging rather than releasing? This is kind of a mic drop question. I should leave some time here for you to wrestle through with that question. Preacher, this is is uncomfortable. Okay? But shame on me if we don't talk about money. Shame on me. Money and discipleship go hand in hand. Remember our goal this series is to take hold of that life, that eternal life, take hold of the true life that God has called us to. But in order to do that, we have to first release the grip, clenched what we're holding on to so that we can take hold. It often surprises Christians Jesus talks about money a lot. It surprises us when we discover how much the Bible talks about money. In fact, there are more than 2,300, that's 2,300 verses on money, wealth, and possessions. Jesus spoke about money roughly 15% of his preaching. Listen, 11 out of 39 parables, he's talking about money. Wow. It was his most talked about topic, actually. He discussed the topic of money more often than he spoke of faith and prayer combined. Does that surprise you? He speaks of money more often than heaven and hell combined. Isn't that interesting? So the question remains, what are you not giving? Better question, why? Might I suggest to you some of the reasons why? Is there a trust issue at play here? Is there a faith issue at play? Maybe it's a fear issue at play. Perhaps it's just good old-fashioned greed. Maybe you resonate with one of these specific pushbacks to surrender, like this one. This is too personal. Maybe you'd say it this way. What I do with my money is my business. It's personal, it's private, it has nothing to do with you, so mind your own business. I get it. I hear you. I've heard that one before. 
We come by this stance honestly, and I get this. Jesus talks about this with an adjacent topic. He says, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by men. You've already received your reward in full. I get it. We would never write the amount we're giving on a check and hold it up and say, hey, everybody, look at this. No, 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 don't do that. No, 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 we've violated something in there. But the biblical counterpoint to this secrecy Many of us live under, but Jesus assures us that one day it will be made public. In Luke chapter 12, verse 3, what has been done in secret will be shouted from the rooftops. One day we will give an account to God on how we've used the time, the energy, the resource, and the money that he has trusted us with. Here's another pushback. I've worked hard, and I earn it. I don't doubt that. If you say that, I don't doubt your ability to work hard. In a type A-driven county, this culture, I get it. My goodness, you are hard workers. You roll up your sleeves and you work hard. Maybe you would say it this way. The money I have is the result of my own hard work and my own good use of what I've earned, and I deserve to use it for myself. You've worked hard. I acknowledge that. So have others. I had a moment. I had a moment where I feel like God was doing something in my heart. Uh, I, I work hard. I, I, I learned a lot of things on the farm. I talked about that last week, including the value of hard work. Years ago, probably four years ago, we had a hail damage claim on our house, replaced the roof. Some of you have lived through this. It was my day off. I scheduled it on my day off because I wanted to be there when they did it. Big thing happening on my house. I wanted to be there. Listen, I know what the claim was for. I know what the insurance, what they were paying out. I know how much it costs to buy shingles and other supplies. And then I was doing the math and dividing it, the leftovers. By, I know the company takes a cut. And then there's eight workers on my roof swarming. They got this thing done in less than a day. Like half a day, they re-roofed my house. I did the math and I thought, I I don't even know if these guys are making a living wage. I know what they're doing. I've done it. I re-roofed my, our first house. Oh, my goodness. I picked the hottest week in the summer in August. Stupid. Re-roofed my house. I did it by myself with a couple of buddies helping me. Oh, man, that's hard work. And I thought, man, I'm a hard worker, but those guys are swarming. They are making it happen. They are really working hard. Be careful with that line of reasoning, with that pushback. How about this one? It belongs to me. Okay, sure. You'd say it this way, what I have is mine. It belongs to me legally and morally, therefore I can spend it how I choose. Yeah, this is true legally. It could be argued even morally, but it's not true theologically. Scripture is clear and it's persistent. Psalm 24 puts it this way, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, including my bank account. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul actually in his letter before this one, he speaks to the Corinthians and he says, he says who it's a question, who has anything that he has not been given? In other words, we're not owners. The Bible word there is stewards stewardship. We are stewards trusted with God's creation to use wisely and generously, and this includes the generous use of our money. There's a story from church history. I love this. John Wesley is walking through town one day. He lived this well. Accounts that I've read according to his life 
He made a lot of money with his publishing. He wrote a lot of books, gave it all away. He did not leave much behind. He gave it all this side of heaven. He's walking down the street, and, and a guy comes running up to him on a horseback, and he's yelling. He's all horses leathered up. He says, hey, your house just burned to the ground. We've been fighting the fire. Your house, where you live, it's just burned to the ground. John Wesley takes a beat, and he looks the guy in the eyes, and he says, no, the Lord's house burned to the ground. That means, well, that's one less responsibility for me. Was he being flippant? No. He was recognizing that he's not the owner. He's merely the steward. That's pretty wise. How about this pushback? I need what I have. How will I survive on less? Listen, I get it. Inflation, I get it. That's scary. But doesn't it really come down to this question? It's another theological question. Do we trust God for our provision? Do we trust him? Jesus challenges his listeners over and over to trust God, regardless of your circumstances. I love this quote from a book that I would recommend to you. This is from the book The Treasure Principle, written by a guy named Randy Alcorn. I would highly suggest during this series you read this book. I love this quote. Giving isn't a luxury of the rich. It's a privilege of the poor. Do you remember the Macedonian churches? They give even through their poverty, this grace of giving that we talked about last week. Giving isn't a luxury of the rich. It's a privilege of the poor. They were saying, put us in, coach. We're ready to play. We want the joy that comes through giving. I love that. By the way, if you're a money person and you love a good stock tip, let me give you a great one. Buy this book. The first chapter alone is worth your investment. Actually, I dare you to read that chapter. It speaks of ROI, exchanging short-term for long-term goals. In it, the author articulates how to receive 10,000% interest. 10,000%. I would invite you to read Matthew chapter 19, verse 29, to unpack that thought. You can do that on your own, in your own quiet time. 10,000% investing today in the eternal. Speaking of your quiet time, have you signed up yet for New Life Daily? We're dropping content noon every day for us to wrestle through. If you have not done that yet, do that. We've got a QR code. I'll put it up right here. Take a picture of that. Hit that link, sign up, be a part of that. There's great content there. I told you I'd share with you three observations. I've given you two. Here's the third. This comes straight from verses 13 and following. New life giving recognizes that we give in the light of the gospel, what Jesus has already done. God cares less about what we are giving, more about what we aren't giving. Okay, why? That's a big part of that motivation as well. How about this? It recognizes that each of us that we each respond as God calls us to, which requires us to engage with him. We pray. He talks to us. We listen. And then we respond. That's what it looks like. That's what engagement looks like through this new life season. Let me show you from the text where we pull this. This is 2 Corinthians 8, verse 13. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. 
At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. There's a cyclical cycle here in God's economy. He takes care of his kids. Don't rob yourself of the opportunity to be a part of taking care of one of God's other children. And they're going to do the same for you. That's what we see on display here. Then the text continues. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. We should ask ourselves, well, where is it written? We'll get to that in a second. Before we do that, though, would you go back to your vision guide, open it up to page 10. I want to make sure we're crystal clear on the bullseye what we're aiming at here. Page 10, our new life vision. I touched on this last week, but we have a primary goal through this season. There are a whole bunch of secondary goals, and I get it. We get distracted by these, and these are good things. What God would do through us, new life for others, new life for next generations, new life for venture. These are all great things, but this, those are the secondary goal. The primary goal, well, here, let me just read it out loud so we're all tracking. Our primary goal during this upcoming two-year season is that 100% of our people, you heard Jake say kids are doing this, students are doing this, 100% of our people to go before God, engage, and to have a life-changing encounter with him regarding their generosity. In God's eyes, our growth and generosity is not about a financial transaction, but is about heart transformation. And spiritual growth, that is the primary goal. I told you last week that I've spent my entire life farm adjacent. I was reminded of that this past week. I was texting back and forth with a friend. I had been out in the deer woods, farm adjacent, and I had watched and even videotaped some deer behavior, and I was sharing that with him. We were going back and forth. Well, here's the text we had back and forth. I explained this is what I had seen, and I said I had seen the scrape and the rub the day before, and then I sat over them the next morning. Cool videos. And then I said, nature, God's creation, is amazing. Drives me back to come watch it more because I see fingerprints of the creator in his creation. Then I had a devotional thought. It's wild to think that bucks, male deer, are hardwired to do that, what I had shared with him, and have been every October since Genesis chapter 1, verse 24. That blows me away to think about that, the natural order of what God has created. And men have been observing that since Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. I told you I've grown up, spent most of my life farm adjacent. I love these agrarian metaphors that come out of Scripture. I think there's great opportunity through a new life to explore those. Just so we're clear about primary and secondary goals, can I use another farm adjacent illustration to illustrate? I've got an image. Let me show you this. It's a bullseye. Have you ever patterned a shotgun? Some of you guys were like, he's talking about money, I'm out. Oh, he's talking about patterning a shotgun, I'm back in. All right, here we go. I look at this and I see a couple things. First of all, I see a dude that needs to take a, a small screwdriver or maybe a file and he needs to move the bead on his, his rifle or shotgun a little bit to the left because it's hit here instead of here. But Follow me. If you're aiming here, this is the primary goal. Secondary goal, there are some really cool things out here in the peripheral that we hit 
when we're aiming here. Primary goal, 100% engagement. Primary goal that God does something in us, in our hearts. Secondary goal, yeah, we're going to be a part of building a cool hospital in Honduras. Secondary goal. Yeah, we're going to build some inviting spaces out here. You can invite your one to come and play here. Maybe they'll join us in the living room. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Secondary goal. Same as you. I can't wait for you to meet some of them. We're going to invest in that. But these are all things that God will do through us. Those are secondary goals. The primary goal is that first God does something in us. What's the primary goal? 100% engagement. That's what we're aiming at. That God does something in your heart, that God does something in your heart, that he does something in your heart, and that he does something in my heart. That phrase, as it is written, did you catch that? Begs the question, where is it written? Well, can I just real quick point out the difference between mammon and manna? Mammon and manna. I fear mammon is the God, small g God of this age. You could study that word and discover that there's some demonic influence there in a culture that's driven by consumerism. I fear that the small g God of mammon might be something that each one of us are born into. We struggle with it. Manna, well, this is God's provision. He cares for his kids. He provides for his kids. But he does give us some boundaries on how we receive and steward that provision. Where is it written? Oh, it's written back in Exodus. Paul is referring here in 2 Corinthians to a much older story that he probably, other letters and other times in person, coached those listeners up on and told them about what God had been doing, his faithfulness throughout time, like he used people like Moses. The first time we see manna described, this is Exodus chapter 16, verse 31, the people of Israel called the bread that rained down from heaven. Why? Because the people, the refrain over and over in the book of Exodus is, we're hungry, we're thirsty. The phrase there is, And the people grumbled. And the people grumbled. They grumbled, and God said, well, here's food for you to eat. We'll call it manna. It's white like coriander seed. It tastes like wafers made with honey. That sounds delicious, but here's the boundaries on it. Everybody needs their fair share. So they measure it as an omer. I don't know how much that was, but it was amount for each of them to get their fill each day. God said, don't hoard it. There's enough each day for your needs. And by the way, some of you are able-bodied. I want you to go out and gather a whole bunch. Some of you, you're like my great aunt, 90. She can't pick up very much, so she can't gather much, but she's going to bring what she gathers and bring it to the tent, and the able-bodied dude brings what he can gather and brings it to the tent, and then everybody gets an omer just for that day, and they're not supposed to hoard it. They're not supposed to keep it. But human nature, this is what Paul is referring back to here. Let's look at this. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some gathered little. Great. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Great. End of story. Great. It went well? Not so much. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. So they did exactly what he told them to do, right? Wrong. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots, and it began to smell. And I love this next line. So Moses was angry with them. 
You've brought the smell. Have you ever spent time around maggots? You don't want that. He warned them. God warned them through Moses. They did this rather than doing this and trusting God. Here's the question. What are you clinging to so tightly that it's beginning to stink? It's beginning to smell rotten in your life. I can't answer that question for you. That's something you have to answer for yourself. By the way, it is for yourself. It's for myself. Why? Because lordship is about me. It's not about him. Oh, God, you gave him this. He should be responsible for this. God, you gave her this. She should be, why isn't she giving that? No, no, no. Lordship is about me. It's about you. This is human nature, right? We have a tendency to do this. We say, look at him, look at her, look at the car he drives, look at the house she lives in, look at the boat they enjoy. Listen, stuff doesn't have to smell rotten. It doesn't have to smell rotten. You don't have to feel guilty about what you have. There is a litmus test to apply to this. You know what a litmus test is? I did a Google search not long ago. We had this weird stuff growing inside of our hot tub. So this is basically a litmus test. We had a science experiment going on. I leaned back in the hot tub, and it felt like sandpaper against my back. That's not good. Wait a minute, wait a minute. He has a hot tub? Oh, we've got to go back and add that to the list. The hot tub that he owns. What about him? You see how deeply this works into human nature? Here's the question. What are you clinging to so tightly that it smells rotten? There is a litmus test to apply here. Here is the manna litmus test. It's real simple. Are you ready? You might want to write these down. The manna litmus test, do I use it to honor Jesus? That house you live in, do you use it to honor Jesus? If you do, great. If you don't, not all of it. If part of it you've kind of held back and you're doing this, well, maybe you do need to downsize and get into a right-sized house to honor Jesus in. How about that car? Do you use it to honor Jesus? Great. That boat, great. That hot tub, great. I've had some incredible conversations in my hot tub with my kids. There's some great discipleship that happens in that space. Second question, oh, this one's hard. Am I clinging to it? Has it started to smell rotten? Are there maggots growing in this space in my heart? Do I use it to honor Jesus? Am I clinging to it? This is the litmus test. All of your stuff, that's what you need to bounce it off of. You've heard the question, do I own it or does it own me? Do I own it or does it own me? Listen, if you're going to Marie Kondo your house, that's a great question to ask. If you're leaning into Jesus' lordship, there's a better way to ask it. It goes like this. Does Jesus own it or does it own me? Does Jesus own it? Or does it own me? I'm going to invite you over the next couple of weeks to engage on this thought process. Whatever it is in your life, do I use it to honor Jesus or am I clinging to it? Does Jesus own it or does it own me? And this requires surrendering ourselves to him, to his ways, to his will, 
to his desires. God's doing a work in our hearts, and I love hearing those stories. That is the surrendered life. That's the new life that Jesus offers. I want you to hear a story from a couple of sweet couple in our church. God's been doing a thing in their heart. Listen to Paul. Listen to Bev and what God has to say in them and through them. Check this out. Thirteen years ago, it made sense for us to move over by Anderson. Two-acre-plus lot out in the country. It was really nice. But we kept our community here in Noblesville. I'm a retired nurse. I was used to being with people every day and being able to have an impact in their life. We live out in the country. I, I didn't have the opportunity to touch people and be a witness or a light to people in any way. For the past year or two, I have felt very restless spiritually and spent a lot of time praying, Lord, we have all these initiatives going on at church. I feel like I'm not involved because I live far enough away. I don't have neighbors that I can invite to things. And so during my prayer time, I started feeling God just nudging me and making me think about, maybe you need to move. I kind of fought that for a while because I love where we live. God just kept pushing me a little more and a little more. Our children and our grandchildren, when we told them that we were going to move, it was hard for almost all of them, and especially some of the grandchildren. It was like, oh, Nana, I love that house. We put our house for sale, but we didn't have a place to go. So when we did sell it, we asked the buyer to give us as much time as they could. They gave us three months. <laughs> and so we had lots of time to buy a new house, and we were able to downsize for almost three months. I knew it was the right thing to do, but when it came down to it, inside I was struggling. It was a big house. So thinking about getting rid of things that were special to me was very, very difficult. And God reminded me frequently, it's stuff. It's just stuff, and you cannot take it with you. And when we started through the process, it was like, why do we have all of this? We don't need all of this. And what do we really need to live? And when it comes down to it, we don't need a whole lot. We sold and gave away and made more trips to Wheeler Mission and Goodwill than you can imagine. <laughs> And when we bought this house, it was under construction, and it was going to be available, what, about two weeks before the other people wanted us out of our house. So the timing was just miraculously arranged, as far as we're concerned. God reminded me yesterday, when, when we listen to him and when we're obedient to him, we have nothing to be concerned about. It's been a beautiful process when I look back on it to see how God has worked in the whole thing.
I started praying this past summer for our new neighbors, not knowing who they are, and that God will help me to be bold in getting to know them, building relationships, and and having the opportunity to invite them to things to church. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Bev. What's our question? Let's put it up on the screen. Does Jesus own it or does it own me? We put up a bunch of the big items up there. Those are important to wrestle through, but lordship oftentimes it's the rubber meets the road even in those small little moments, like that $6 cup of nasty pumpkin spice latte. Those are so nasty. I don't know if Jesus can redeem those, but I don't know. It's even in the small things. Do we give those over to God? Are we asking those important questions even in the little moments of the day? This journey that we're on is such an important journey. It's good for the soul. Mammon versus manna. God provides. Am I clinging? Am I hoarding? Where are we in this process? Did you hear Bev? She said she prayed. We pray. God speaks. We listen. We respond. So I don't know. Maybe you don't want to respond. Then don't make the mistake of beginning the process of praying. He'll, he'll whisper in your ear. He'll nudge you. And then lordship requires faithfulness. We're gearing up toward November 19th. We have a strong action step there between now and then. Actually, some of you, I know you are because you're telling me you are. You're chomping at the bit. You can't wait to make that commitment. November 9th, we're going to do a thing called Advanced Commitment Night. Uh, that's uh, going to be actually at the original Woodland Springs Christian Church building where this story began. Join us for that. If you're ready to make that commitment, if you're saying, I, I want to lead out, leaders go first, we would love to have you. It's an open invitation to join us November 9th for Advanced Commitment Night. Would you stand up with me right now? God is doing something in us so that he can do something through us. Would you bow your heads right now? Would you join me in prayer? Father, I thank you for the gifts that you give. I thank you for the Holy Spirit to nudge us, and I know that that's happening. Lord, I felt it even last night myself, you whispering in my ear. Lord, give us courage to pray bold prayers. Give us courage to follow boldly. We thank you for what you do in us and what you're going to do through us. And it's in your name, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.